If you have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So we've been studying here. This is what's commonly known as the love chapter. There's a lot here. Uh, We've been going slow through this, and so I would like to read uh, the first seven verses this morning out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So follow along as I read. Paul writes this to this Corinthian church. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and Even if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. All things endures all things. Love never ends. Let me pray for us. God, what a magnificent picture of your son. Love that never is corrupted. Love that is never failing. Love that never falters. But a picture of your son in the way that he loved us, in the way that he loves you. Father, I pray this morning as we study again in this chapter that we would desire with all of our hearts to be more like Jesus Christ, to be more like this picture that's being painted here by Paul for our instruction, for our good, and ultimately for your glory. We love you, Father, and I pray that you would help me now as I speak and preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we return. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been here in 1 Corinthians 13, but we return to its description of Christian love. I told you a couple of weeks ago when we started through this that we would be moving slow through this section because of all of the qualities that describe the Christian. Love is the one that will remain for all of eternity. Other things are going to pass away. One day, when you and I get to heaven... Um, I'm not going to have a job anymore, right? There won't be preachers in heaven. We'll learn directly from God himself. Um, There may not be choristers or worship leaders, at least not the way we think of them now. Um, We might not have those things. But we will have love. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love never ends. And so for all of eternity, every believer will experience that unending, immaculate spotless love of the Father. And for the first time, when we're in eternity, we will be able to reciprocate that love to the Father in a way that's void of sin, that's void of corruptness. And there will be this unfettered, uh, unbounded love um, that we will see and experience in fullness. Okay, so what we're studying now and what we're doing now, like Joyce mentioned earlier, is we're practicing uh, for eternity. And so Paul gives us these qualities of love, these descriptions of love 
that should really be paramount in our thinking and in the way we interact with each other. Love is that quality that brings together every spiritual gift that God has given to the church in such a way that we all work in tandem, we all work in a way that builds up others and doesn't bring them down, and together we move forward. I don't know if you've ever heard of a pastor named Art Azurdia, one of my favorite pastors, and he describes this idea of love like this. He says, and I quote, Let's suppose that a kite could come to life and develop its own personality. On the one hand, it would feel the exhilaration that comes from the surges of the wind directed through the sky. On the other hand, it would immediately take notice of something annoying, the tugging of a string at its center, a feeling of constraint, of resistance, The kite begins to think to itself, if only I could detach, then I could really fly. To the kite, you see, it seems that the string is limiting its full experience and freedom. But as any boy and girl who has ever flown a kite knows, were that string suddenly to snap, it wouldn't soar for very long. It would fly for maybe a minute or two, But very soon thereafter, it would end up on the ground in a pile of broken sticks and torn paper, never to fly again. Rather, you see, it is the taunt line between the kite and the one holding it that enables the kite to fly, that allows all the principles of aerodynamics to come into play so that the kite might achieve its full purpose. Christian love performs the very same function as a kite string. You take away the stabilizing force of Christian love and every towering gift, every supernatural power, every sacrificial act, every musical performance, you name it, it will all end up on the ash heap of eternal insignificance without love. I like that. I like that. You see, love holds together and pulls back on all those spiritual gifts in such a way that it allows them to move together and to have its full potential. That's what Christian love does. That's how Christian love acts. So as we've been going through 1 Corinthians 13, we haven't been so much defining love because the Bible never really defines it. It only ever describes it. Love is not less than a feeling, but it's certainly more than that. It's more than just the fuzzy-wuzzy kind of feeling you get. Uh, Love is an action. Love does. Love moves. And so Paul takes 15 verbs here. Seven of them are positive and eight of them are negative. And he is describing to you and I what love does and how it acts. So two weeks ago, Uh, we covered the first five, and those are found in verse four, the first five verbs. Let me just review them quickly. Uh, Maybe you've forgotten them. Maybe you weren't here. So just real quickly, let's talk about what those were. Uh, Love was patient. And we said that means that love is long-suffering. It will suffer for long periods of time in the face of wrongdoing without retaliating. It's, it's very 
patient. It's, it's very um, enduring. Love is also very kind. And not only does it endure suffering, but it actually moves toward the one who's inflicting it. Kindness says, I will give to my enemy even while he is giving to me all of his hate. I will give to him love while he is expressing to me his hate. That's kindness. Love is kind. Uh, Love does not envy. It's not jealous. And we talked about how love does not want what others have, nor does love gloat when it has what others want. Love, Love doesn't boast. Love doesn't say, look at me. I am the greatest. Many of you know a guy named Muhammad Ali, right? And one of his catchphrases was the phrase, I am the greatest, right? We've seen that clip over and over throughout the years. You see him and he's standing there and he's saying, I am the greatest. That was how he identified himself among men. Well, there's a story that's told once of an interaction between Ali and an airline stewardess uh, right before the plane was ready to take off. And in typical arrogant fashion, uh, Ali refused to put on his seatbelt. And so this airline stewardess making her final round comes around and she was very brave. And she went up to Ali and she reminded him that he needed to fasten his seatbelt. Ali replied, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which this quick thinking stewardess said, yeah, well, Superman don't need no airplane either. Love is not arrogant. Love is not boastful. Love doesn't say, look at me. Okay, that's the opposite of what love. Love love doesn't puff out its chest and claim to toot its own horn, to ask others to tell it how wonderful it is. So those are five that we've studied already. Uh, if If you weren't here that Sunday, I would encourage you to go get the CD and listen to it. I mentioned in my prayer that those five and the ones we'll look at this morning and the ones we'll look at next time all come together to find the supreme example in Jesus Christ. Jesus was always long-suffering. It struck me this week as I was preparing for this how long-suffering Jesus really was, even up to and including the night before he was crucified. And if you remember the story, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, He was sweating, as it were, drops of blood. And he asked his disciples to only stay awake. Just stay awake and pray with me. Pray with me. Twice in that story, Jesus goes off to pray by himself, and he comes back only to find that his disciples were doing what? They were sleeping, right? They were passed out. If ever a man needed the encouragement, ever needed the companionship, ever needed the strength of a friend, it was Jesus Christ in that moment, and his friends slept. I go and I work out a couple times uh, each week, uh, and and I love doing this. And when you get to the end of the workout, uh, you're tired, you're exhausted, your body just doesn't feel like it's going to go anymore. And the coach is standing there saying, come on, you can do it. You're almost there. Just a few more minutes. I know you can do it. And that little encouragement that she gives, it just sort of gives you that last little oomph that I can do this, right? 
Jesus needed that encouragement in, in a man's sort of way, in a human sort of way. Jesus needed that oomph, that encouragement. Jesus, you're almost there. You can do this. We're here. We're praying for you. And yet, what did his friends do? They slept. They slept. And how he must have suffered when he realized that he didn't even have them, his closest ones. And what did he do? Did he call them names? Did he make fun of them? Did he call them lazy? No. He didn't berate him. He woke him up and he said, keep on praying. He kept on encouraging them when he was the one that should have been receiving the encouragement. Jesus, in the face of suffering, he was, he was long-suffering. That's why Jesus was called the, the suffering servant in Isaiah. He was a man of sorrow. And in, in the midst of that, he had this true love uh, for people. Love that eventually took him to the cross for me and you. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Friends, if it weren't for the love of Christ, he would have called 10,000 angels to come to the Garden of Gethsemane and just take him home. And he would have said, forget this whole thing. But it was his love for you and it was his love for me that compelled him to go forward. He says, I know you're a sinner. I know that if you would have been there, you would have torn out my beard. I know if you would have been there, you would have smashed the thorns in my brow. You would have yelled, crucify him. But it is for that reason that I came to earth to die for you. Because I love you. And if you will repent of your sins, and if you will confess me as Lord, I will save you from those sins. That's the love of Jesus. That's the love of our Christ, our Lord. He is the face of love. And so as we study through 1 Corinthians 13, everything in this text reflects that preciousness of a Savior. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes these things down because he says, this is how I want you to act. Because this is how Jesus acted. This is how Jesus loved. So, in order to imitate him, we've got to know him. And so we're delving into 1 Corinthians 13 very slowly because we want to know what this description of love is all about. Okay? Are you with me? All right, here, here we go. Let's look at this. So what is the next description of love? It comes out of verse 5. It starts off and it says, Love is not rude love is not rude if you have a new american standard it says love does not act unbecomingly or the king james version says love does not behave itself unseemly to be rude is to be inconsiderate of those that are around you it's to put your interests ahead of the interests of others have you ever been around somebody who when they chew their food, their jaw kind of drops down like this. And it's just disgusting. You can see everything inside their mouth as they're, they look like a cow sort of chewing its cud. Um, it's one of those things that you teach your children not to do, right? You say, close your mouth while you're chewing. If you don't do that, you're being rude. Why? Because rudeness says, 
I don't care about you. I don't care what you think. I'm inconsiderate of you. All I care about is myself. I don't love you enough to be considerate of what might affect you. I will do what I want to do whether you like it or not. That's rudeness. That's the opposite of love. Love would say this. Your happiness matters to me. And so I want to do that which makes you happy. I want to be considered of you. I want to put your interests ahead of my own. Love is gracious. Love is considerate. I'll never forget the time I was about five years old and I was checking out of the old Kmart down here in Washington uh, with my mom. And we were waiting in line to check out and the lady in front of us was putting her items from her cart onto the conveyor belt there. And she was leaning pretty far over into her cart to kind of get that last item. Now, I'm not sure exactly why I did this, but I was five. And I walked up behind her and I put one hand on this hip and I put one hand on this hip and I turned around to my mom and I said, Mom, look at this! My mom about died. I'm fairly certain I got my backside warmed up when we got home that day. Why did I do that? Because I was being rude. I was being rude. Rude says, I have no consideration for that woman's feelings. All I wanted to do was make a point to my mom, right? That's love is rude, or love is not rude. That was being rude. Here's the sad part. Some people never outgrow that. I was five. Hopefully, in some ways, I've outgrown that. Some people continue to be rude their entire lives, and they're known by that. They're characterized by that. If you're around that person, you just know they're going to be rude. Folks, as children of Christ, we're called to put away our childish ways and grow up and to live in adult ways. And love is not rude. It considers others' interests as higher than our own. I would even add this. Love extends beyond just believers and also to unbelievers, right? It is not only right to be considerate of believers, it is also very right to be considerate of non-believers. How will we ever win people to Christ if we display the utmost rudeness uh, to people who don't know them? Uh, My wife has to remind me uh, not to be rude when we travel and stop in at restaurants. And let me tell you why. You know the scenario. You pull into the restaurant, right? At the same time, another car pulls in, and it looks like they have about 16 kids, and you have three, right? And your kids are hungry, they're grouchy, you're ready to stop, and what do you do? You as the dad, you look over and you lock eyes with the dad in that car. And it is a race for the front door, right? It is kids, let's go, let's go, let's go. And we've got to beat that family in because if we don't, we're going to have a real mess on our hands. Give no consideration. 
And all the while we plaster on that fake little smile like we're going to be nice if you get to the door first, but I'm going to get there, right? Uh, that's, that's, our, that's our goal. Imagine what that family thinks when I sit down with my kids and we start praying, God is great, God is good. I wonder what they think of me then. Whether they're believers or unbelievers, listen to me. Love is not rude. And love considers the other. Love holds the door open and lets them go first. That's love. Let me add one more thing to this idea of love is not rude. I am convinced that decent, loving behavior that is not rude doesn't just stop with words and attitude. I think it also extends to one's apparel and appearance. Did you know that you can be downright rude with what you wear and how you wear it? I'm not talking about whether you wear clothes that are in style or out of style, whether they're old or new. I'm talking about the way you look and present yourself to others in a modest way. Think about this. Listen to how we defined rude a minute ago. Rude says this, I don't love you because I couldn't care less what affects you. I will do what I want whether you like it or not. Friends, when you and I wear clothes in such a way that gives no consideration to the battle of purity that goes on in the minds of others, we're being rude. We're being rude. There are times when folks walk through our front door and I think, what do I do? Do I look away or do I run? I think rudeness goes beyond just what we say and just what we do and extends really to everything we are. I think we need to be aware of that. I think we need to say, I care about you. I care about the battles you have. I care about the spiritual warfare going on in your mind. So I want to be considerate of that. I want to love you like a Christian brother, a Christian sister should love you. Okay? Think about it. Love is not rude. Second one, let's look at this one. Paul adds another description here. He says, love does not insist on its own way. Love does not seek its own. Some of your translations say, love is the opposite of self-seeking. Love isn't interested in its own things. Love is interested in the things of another. Here's a good way to measure whether or not you insist on your own way. What will people say about you when you're dead? What will people say about you, not only at your funeral, but what will people say about you as they remember your life? What would people, if they had the choice, what would people write on your tombstone? It is said that there's a churchyard in the old English village of Limington, England, And there stands a tombstone, and the only thing written on that tombstone are these words. Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared for nothing but gathering wealth. Now, where he is or how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. 
There's another tombstone at St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and it says this. It's a good thing to have on your tombstone. Sacred to the memory of General Charles George Gordon, who at all times and everywhere gave his strength to the weak, his substance to the poor, his sympathy to the suffering, his heart to God. Now, which of those tombstones would you like to have on your plot? Because people are going to remember you by something. Love does not insist on its own way. Let's make this practical. Maybe you're a basketball player here this morning. I know we have some. Which record would you rather hold? The most number of three-pointers or the most number of assists? Now, that's not to say either one of them are bad, and and you might want both of them. But would you be content to hold the record for the most number of assists? Love does not insist on its own way. I would rather let you have that record and give you the ball and you make the three-pointer. I'll just be the assister. Okay? That's very practical. Love does not insist that the ball be in my hands every time. Dad, what about you? What do you want to be known for? Your insistence that the kids zip it when they come into the living room? When you're watching your show or you're reading your newspaper? Or would you rather that your kids know you for taking time to sit down and talk with them? Time to sit down and play with them. Love does not insist that you get your quiet time. Many of you, most of you here this morning are church members. What do you want to be remembered for? That you graciously gave of your time, your money, your energy uh, to make the church grow? Or that you crossed your arms in stubborn defiance to every program, idea, or change that ever came along? I was made aware not too long ago that one of my not-too-distant ancestors uh, was one of these kind of guys. And the stories told of him uh, that he couldn't hear very well, uh, but there was apparently a vote that was going to be taken that morning in church. And someone asked him, how are you going to vote? And he was surprised because he didn't know what it, that there was going to be a vote. And so his only response is, well, I, I don't know what it is, but I'm against it. Cross his arms. I'm against it. You know, that's what he's known for. That was the story. That was one of the only stories that I've been told about that relative. Love does not insist on its own way. It's very practical, isn't it? It's right there. Love sits in our lap. Love happens in our home. Love happens on the gym floor. Love happens in the classroom. Love happens in church. Love isn't this abstract thing that's just kind of out there. Love is right in front of us, and it's a choice that we make. That's love. It does not insist on its own way. Let's look at another one. Uh, Paul says, continuing on in verse 5, love is not irritable. Love is not irritable. That means love is not easily provoked. Love is not easily angered. Uh, we looked at anger a little bit uh, last week in our, in our Bible conference, um, but anger says this. Anger says, I am willing to sin if I'm not getting what I want, or I am willing to sin in order to get what I want. Okay, Anger can go either direction. No one can make you angry. 
That might be a shocker to some of you, but no one can make you angry. The only thing another person can do is to provide the opportunity for your heart to expose its idols. Hear me. No one can make you angry. The only thing another person can do is to provide the opportunity for your heart to expose its idols. Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 15, it says this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Listen to all the anger words that come out of that verse. Evil thoughts, murder, false witness, slander. It is very easy for you and I, friend, to point the finger and say, if he or she would only stop doing, fill in the blank, I wouldn't get so angry. We have to answer that biblically, and we have to say, you're not getting angry because of that other person. You're getting angry because your heart is being deprived of that which it thinks it deserves. When I'm watching a show at home and one of my kids or two or three of my kids start to get really loud in the room and I feel inside of me this thing sort of boiling up and I start raising my voice and saying, be quiet, go to another room, just just stop for a minute. Did those kids make me angry? No. All those kids did was showed me in my heart that I valued that show so much that if I'm not getting to watch it, I'm willing to let somebody else have it. It reflects a value system. It reflects what I worship. And my anger so often is exposed because of what my heart wants, right? So those of us that struggle with that, those of us who are tempted to be angry, remember, anger only reveals a deep-seated heart issue. It's inside of us. When we love people, this verse says, we are not easily provoked. We are not easily angered. To be easily angered and to be known for anger can cause significant problems. Most of you or many of you have probably heard of a guy named Jonathan Edwards. He was the third president of Princeton University, one of the greatest preachers of history, but he had a daughter with an uncontrollable temper. A young man fell in love with his daughter, and he came and asked Dr. Edwards if he could marry her. Dr. Edwards, I want to marry your daughter. You can't have her, was his abrupt answer. But I love her, said the young man. You still can't have her, Edwards repeated. But she loves me, replied the man. You still can't have her. Why not, he said. Dr. Edwards answered, because she's not worthy of you. But he said, she's a Christian, isn't she? Yes, said Edwards, but the grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live. She had an uncontrollable temper. She was known for that. Don't be that person. Love is not easily provoked. The Corinthians struggled with this. What happened when they got provoked? They ran off to court, right? We read about that. 
1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. They just ran off and they just sued each other. Don't make me mad. Don't cross my path or I'll see you in court. That was the Corinthians' attitude. They were easily provoked. They were easily angered. By the way, what are you supposed to do if someone in the church is troubling you or giving you problems? Well, you're to try to work that out on your own. But then 1 Corinthians 6, when we studied that, Paul says, go talk to your elders. There are people inside the church that can help you. There are righteous people that can make decisions with you, that can help you. Talk to them. Let those who won't take sides ideally sit down with you and kind of work that out together. But don't be irritable. Don't be angry. Love is not easily provoked. Love is not angered. Last one, and we'll, we'll close up with this one. Um, the fourth one in, in this verse, verse five. Love is not resentful. Love is not resentful. The word resentful has at its root a bookkeeping term. It means to keep a record or to keep a charge of an account. It is, an, it is a verbal portrait of a bookkeeper who flips the pages of his ledger and he writes down each and every transaction. What was received, what was spent. If you would ask him, he would be able to provide you an itemized list of every single thing that passed through his hands, right? It's a bookkeeping term. And in this context of love, it literally means to keep a record of wrongs. So this verse says, love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love is not resentful. Some people are like this, aren't they? You've been around people like that. Uh, People who can tell you every single thing you've ever done wrong in your life. Right? Have you ever been around somebody like that? I've been around folks like that, and I've uh, in particular been around um, some, some wives like that. Not to, not to pick on them. Men can be just as guilty of this. Of this. Um, but we will jokingly say, or I will jokingly say, um, not only uh, when her husband does something wrong, does she get hysterical, but she always gets historical. Right? In her mind, she begins going back through that list of all of the wrongs that her husband has ever committed against her. Uh, That is what this is talking about. Love is not resentful. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. How can you and I ever have the motivation for not keeping a record of wrongs? Well, the motivation comes from our Father in heaven. You understand that God keeps a record of every thought, of every word, of every action, of every attitude that you and I have. There is, if you will, file cabinets full of all of those things in our lives. If we were to envision a file cabinet with this long, long drawer that God could pull out, And he could pull out this detailed ledger of all of the things that we've ever done wrong in our lives. Reams of paper. For some of us especially that are older, many, many reams of paper documenting all of these things. Can you imagine the size of those drawers? Every thought, action, attitude, word. 
And yet, when you and I believe in Jesus Christ, when you and I trust in him as our Lord and Savior, God does, as he, as it were, he opens that file cabinet and he pulls out those reams of wrongdoing and he sets them all aside and he replaces it with the righteousness of Christ. God takes all of those days, months, years of record keeping and he destroys them all. Why? Because he punished Jesus Christ on your behalf. Eric read this this morning in the call to worship, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took all of our wrongdoing, all of our sin, and he died for that. He was punished. And in, in, that, in that place, we get his righteousness. Do you remember the story of the thief on the cross? Love this story. Luke records this story. Let me read part of this to you. And I want us to think about this idea of love does not keep a record of wrongs. Luke 23, Luke writes this. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. But the other thief rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Here hung a criminal. Here hung a man with a file cabinet of wrongs in heaven. Here hung a man who was categorized and who was known for his life of crime. An evil man. Perhaps he was a liar. Perhaps he was an angry man. Perhaps he was sexually deviant. Perhaps he was a murderer. We're not told exactly, other than we know he was a thief, right? But he was hanging here. He was hanging there condemned. And there is not a single mention in the text of anyone standing near this thief to encourage him as he died. No family, no friends, no one to comfort this man as he was taking his last breath. He was all alone, suffering justly under the guilt of his own lifestyle. He was hanging naked because everyone who was crucified was crucified naked. So he had the shame and the scorn of people looking on his naked body in this agony of a life that had finally caught up with him. And if this death weren't bad enough, he had everything set against him when he crossed from this life into eternity because his crimes were well documented in the file cabinets of heaven. God had written down every one and surely this man was deserving of eternal death for all of the wrongs that he had committed. But this man, this thief, looked over at his Redeemer hanging next to him, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man's heart was quickened by the Spirit, and in that moment, he exercised a saving faith in the only man who he knew could save him, 
The criminal recognized his sin. He saw in Jesus the hope of salvation and he cried out to him. He put all of his trust in Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. When that man died a few hours later and he opened his eyes standing before a holy and righteous God. God reached for the file cabinet, as it were, and he pulled it open. And that man, expecting incriminating evidence, mountains of it, looks at God as he reaches in, pulls out one sheet of paper, and on that paper is written the word, righteous. Love keeps no record of wrong. Let's pray. Father, you are an amazing God. We deserve nothing good. We deserve nothing kind. We are but sinners. And you loved us. Why? You give no answer other than you love us. And Father, you want us to feel and know and understand that precious, redeeming, soul-cleansing love of Jesus who would die for us. And if that's how much you would love us, how could we not love others the same way? Father, these descriptions of love are so personal. They're so tender, they make my heart break. Jesus' name, amen.